This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast, Ramadan Mubarak. For those of you who are listening to this when it first comes out during the month of Ramadan, inshallah. Today we will be discussing Hussein's journey from Mecca to Karbala. Just a quick recap so you understand where we are. After the fifth caliph, Muawiyah died, his son uh, was um, Yazid ibn Muawiyah became the caliph and Hussein ibn Zubair ref- refused to give him the pledge and they flee from Medina and go to Mecca. While in Mecca, Hussein began to receive letters from the Shiites in Kufa inviting him to come to Kufa and take over. Hussein uh, wanted, wanted to check things out first so he sent his cousin Muslim ibn Aqil to Kufa and to verify that the uh, Shiites were really with him there. Uh, soon after Muslim gets there, he sees that things are doing pretty good. And so he writes back to Hussein, tells Hussein, yep, Kufa is ready. Come on over. Uh, meanwhile, uh, not so long after he sends that letter to Hussein, Muslim uh, Ibn Akhil was captured and executed by the Umayyad governor, uh, Umaydullah Ibn Ziyad. Meanwhile, Hussein does not know that things have gone bad for Muslim. He receives Muslim's letter saying it's okay to come. And so Hussein makes up his mind to go to Kufa. And so that's what this episode is about. It, this episode covers his journey to Kufa, though he doesn't quite get there in this journey. Uh, it's mostly his journey from Mecca to Karbala, or just before that. So inshallah, you will hear how everything goes. You can support this podcast, of course, by making a pledge at patreon.com slash Islamic history. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Islamic history. And stay tuned after the show for a little bit of insight into the story. Until then, let's get into the show. This will be the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7, Karbala, Part 1. Al-Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya Kufa, 60 A.H. Umar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas was conflicted. On the one hand, his uncles, cousins, and siblings all advised him to not march against Hussein ibn Ali. It is better you abandon the entire world and all its wealth and all the earthly authority it contains than meet Allah with Hussein's blood on your hands his uncle had told him. But on the other hand, there was his position as governor of Ray. It was not easy to impress Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, the Umayyad governor of Iraq. Umar ibn Sa'ad had to suppress a rebellion in Dastaba in the treacherous mountains of Persia to earn his position. And now he stood to lose it all. Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad had threatened to take away Umar's governorship if he did not march against Hussein. Umar ibn Sa'ad could not believe his predicament. He had to choose between losing this world or losing the next. Could he not have both? Perhaps there was some way for him to satisfy the governor and not fight Hussein. Perhaps, if he was careful, he could talk some sense into these two men he stood between. Surely, one or both of them would have to listen to reason. The more Umar ibn Sa'ad thought about it, 
the more confident he felt. He would make a show of force against Hossein, prove to him there was no way he could win. Perhaps then, Hossein would agree to a peaceful resolution. Then he might even convince Abdullah ibn Ziyad to go easy on Hussein. The governor might accept some trivial offer of submission. Omar had to try. He could not give up everything he had worked so hard for. He could do this. It was possible. But he had to be careful. Dhatul Uruk Al-Hijaz, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya. Dhatul Uruk, Arabia, 60 AH. Zainab bint Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib's second child and Hussein's older sister, had her concerns about this mission. But they were two days into their journey to Kufa and there was no turning back now. Besides, she also knew this was something that had to be done. It was bad enough that Muawiyah had rebelled against her father and usurped the caliphate. It was bad enough Muawiyah ordered the cursing of her father's name throughout the empire. And it was bad enough when he appointed the bloodthirsty Ziyad ibn Abihi as governor of Iraq. Yet, even in death, he still wanted more. Muawiyah wanted to turn the caliphate into a monarchy and force his son onto the ummah. Yazid ibn Muawiyah was not a companion, nor was he a righteous Muslim. He liked musical instruments and silk robes, and there were rumors that he even had a taste for wine. Such a man did not deserve the caliphate, especially when people like her brother and ibn Abbas and ibn Omar were still around. She had a feeling the journey to Kufa would be dangerous. They got a taste of that danger when they encountered a small Umayyad security force sent by the governor of Mecca. You are ordered to return to your home, said Yahya ibn Sa'id, the governor's brother. Hussein ignored them and kept the caravan moving north. Yahya's men rode their horses directly in front of the caravan, blocking their path. The governor forbids you from leaving the city, Yahya said, putting his hand on the hilt of his sword. Return to your homes immediately. Defiantly silent, Hussein tried to go around them, but Yahya reached out and grabbed the camel's bridle. Hussein, do you not fear Allah? Yahya asked him. Don't you know what trouble you're causing? One of Muslim Ibn Aqil's sons rode forward and snatched the bridle out of Yahya's hand. Then one of Yahya's men tried to push him away and a brief scuffle broke out. There was some cursing, punching, and snapping of whips, but no one was seriously injured. Hussein's men eventually overpowered them. If you leave, said Yahya, clutching his shoulder where a camel whip had struck him, you will split this community. Her brother responded with a verse from the Quran. My deeds are mine and your deeds are yours. You are not accountable for my actions, nor am I accountable for yours. Their first step had been at As-Sifa, just northeast of Mecca. There, they met the famous poet known as Farazdak, or the Dumpling. The Dumpling greeted Hussein in a rhythmic voice. May Allah grant you the best and give you all you desire. You're from Iraq, aren't you? asked Hussein. What can you tell me about the people of Kufa? You have asked one who knows, the poet had replied. Their hearts are with you, but their swords are with Banu Umayyah. The decree will come from heaven and Allah will do as he wishes. That sounded ominous to Zainab, but Hussein nodded solemnly as if they were the most profound words he'd ever heard. That is true, he had said. She did not know what lay ahead, but she knew the odds were against them. All they could do was put their trust in Allah and keep moving forward.
Darul Imado, Al Kufa, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 60 AH. We found this one in Qadasiya, said the Shurta captain, shoving the man forward. Obaidullah ibn Ziyad looked the man over. And what is your name? Qais ibn Mushir al Sarawi, the man stammered. Welcome, Ibn Mushir. What were you doing in Qadisiya? Qais looks shaken and afraid, but otherwise unharmed. I am a messenger from the grandson of the Messenger of Allah. Hussein sent me to tell the people that he was on his way to set things right and bring justice and Allah's rule. Hussein ibn Ali is a rebel, and the only thing he has brought so far is disunity and chaos. His actions cost Muslim ibn Aqil to lose his head, and now you stand to lose yours as well. Abedullah paused, studying the rebel. The man deserved nothing more than a swift public execution. The only thing that stopped him was the current mood in Kufa. He could feel something palpable just beneath the surface. The entire mood of the city changed after he executed Muslim ibn Aqil. No one dared say anything out loud, but Orbedullah had the feeling the city might erupt in violence at the slightest provocation. I'll tell you what, said Orbedullah. I'm going to give you a chance to save your life. I want you to publicly praise Amir al-Mu'minin and then curse Hussein and his lying father. If you can do that for me, you'll be free to go. Qais nodded silently. Very well, said Obaidullah. Up you go. Obaidullah followed as the Shurta led the rebel up the steps to the roof of the palace. Below, the streets bustled with life as the people made their way to and from the city center. But a small crowd gathered around the palace when Qais stepped to the roof's edge. All people of Kufa, began Qais. I'm the messenger of Hussein, son of Fatima, daughter of Rasulullah. Obedullah liked that opening. Now the people knew Christ was Hussein's official representative. Hussein is coming. You can help him against the son of the bastard, the man who claimed another man's father. Kill him! yelled Obedullah running forward. Kill him now! Three Shurta grabbed Christ and heaved him over the edge. Obedullah stared down at the broken body in the crowd gathering around it. Some of the faces looked up at him, angry and accusatory. Someone whispered, Bastard. Another, when Hussein gets here. And yet another, his turn is coming. Let them whisper, thought Obedullah. Let them whisper and plot and connive. I will break every single one of them that stands against the regime. Batni Rumma Al Hijaz Sitina Sanatu Hijriya Batni Rumma Arabia 60 AH Hussein was starting to get worried. They had been traveling for eleven days and still no word from Muslim Ibn Aqil since his last letter almost three weeks ago. Hussein expected his cousin to keep him updated with events in Kufa. The dumpling had said their hearts were with him, but their swords were with Banu Umayyah. What did that mean? Perhaps his Sharia were afraid to express their loyalty to Hussein openly. Or perhaps they had divided loyalties. Perhaps they had given up on him coming at all. 
Hussein pushed those thoughts out of his head. These same fears had prompted him to send a letter to his Shia in Kufa. Take this to Kufa and put it in the hands of Muslim ibn Aqil. He had told Qais ibn Mushir, Tell them I'm on my way and to remain patient and steadfast. That was several days ago. Qais had taken one of the fastest horses and he knew the route well. By Allah's mercy, he should have already delivered the message. Hussein had been reluctant to send Qais ibn Mushir to Kufa. He needed every male hand available. He did a quick mental count of the men in his group. Six of his brothers had joined him for the journey. All of them were half-brothers sired by Ali and his wives and slave wives after Fatima. Three of his own sons were also with him, but Ali the elder was the only one old enough to hold a sword. Ali the middle, nicknamed Zainal Abidin, was barely 14, and Ali the younger was not even a year old yet. Several of his nephews, cousins, and second cousins had also come along. Three of his brother Hassan's sons were with him, two sons from his uncle Abbas, three brothers, a son, and a nephew of Muslim ibn Aqil, and three sons from his sister Zainab and her husband Abdullah. He had also brought along three of his maula who, though not related to him by blood, were still tied to Banu Hashim by bonds of mutual support. Dozens of others had left Mecca with him and he had picked up more along the way. Hussein's group now numbered 150 and more were joining every day. Bringing the women and children along had been a difficult decision. He remembered Ibn Zubair had advised him to leave them in Mecca, and for a moment he had actually considered doing that. But in the end, he could not. All Banu Umayyah had to do was take his family hostage and Hussein's mission would be over. And so they had to come along, women, children, babies and all all of them heading for some unknown destiny in Iraq. Zubala, Al-Hijaz, Sitina Sanatu Hijriya Zubala, Arabia, 60AH Nearly three weeks into the journey and Zainab bint Ali was more worried than ever. Things just weren't going as expected. Practically everyone they met warned Hussein not to go to Kufa. It was the same thing in Mecca where Ibn Zubair, Ibn Abbas, Ibn Omar and many others advised Hussein to stay in the Hijaz. She wondered about that. No messages from Muslim Ibn Aqil. No word from Qais Ibn Mushir. No word from a second messenger, Hussein's Mawla, Ibn Yaqtur. All had gone to Kufa and had simply disappeared. Meanwhile, their caravan kept growing. Every time they stopped, more people joined. Zainab knew most of these newcomers did not care about Hussein's mission. They were mostly opportunists looking for some benefit. But some of them were sincere. Like the Bajali man, Zuhair ibn Al-Qain, after performing Hajj, he had followed Hussein out of Mecca. Whenever Hussein stopped, Zuhair's family would also stop. But he maintained a respectful distance, always staying a little further down the road. Finally, Hussein invited Zuhair to join him. Zuhair immediately divorced his wife, sent her home with their children, and joined Hussein's group. And now they had set up camp at a place called Tha'labiya by some and Zubala by others, in an area considered Arabia by some and Iraq by others. Their food and water stores had run so low they had to slaughter one of their camels. 
To stretch the food, Zainab had prepared a stew with chunks of camel meat served with dried dates steeped in camel's milk. It was after sundown when two young men from the Assad clan arrived at the camp requesting an audience with Hussein. After greeting him, one of the men said, May Allah have mercy on you, Ibn Ali. We, we have some news. Would you prefer we tell you privately? Hussein looked around at the men of his camp. I have no secrets from these men. We just left our cousin who asked us to give you a message from the captain of the Shurta in Kufa, Muhammad ibn al-Ashaf. Zainab knew the name al-Ashaf. He was a Yemeni noble who rebelled against Abu Bakr during the wars of apostasy. This Shurta captain must have been his son. According to him, the young Asadi man paused nervously. Uh, Muslim ibn Akil has been killed along with Hani ibn Urwa and several others. There was a collective gasp and a woman shrieked. The noise startled a baby who began crying. Several of Muslims' relatives jumped up screaming curses upon Banu Umayyah and Yazid ibn Muawiyah. Hussein's face, usually an emotionless mask, looked devastated. Zainab saw him struggling to control his emotions before eventually giving in to them. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un, Hussein said in between sobs. May, may Allah have mercy on Muslim and Hani. Please, please don't go to Kufa ibn Rasulullah, the Asadi man continued. For your sake and the sake of your family, your Ahlul Bayt, stay away from Kufa. You have no friends there. You have no Shia there. No, shouted Abdurrahman ibn Aqil, one of Muslim's brothers. Our brother's death must be avenged. Another brother, Ja'far ibn Aqil, piped up. We're not going back until we kill those who killed Muslim or we die trying. The camp went silent. The only sound was the baby crying somewhere in the distance. Everyone was watching Hussein, waiting to hear what he would say. His emotionless mask was back on. The only difference was the moisture on his cheeks, tears shimmering like coals in the reddening sky. There is no good in this world without Muslim Ibn Aqil, he said. The mission continues. May Allah have mercy on you, Ibn Ali, one of her cousins told Hussein. Allah will bring you victory. You are not Muslim Ibn Aqil. If you go to Kufa, the people will follow you. Hussein nodded before disappearing into his tent. The next morning, they broke camp and continued north a few miles before stopping at the oasis of Zubala. Three Bedouins were already there, watering their animals. They told Hussein all the roads leading to Kufa were blocked by the governor's men. They also said there had been talk that a Shia spy had been killed in Kufa. I think they said his name was Ibn Yaktur, said an old Bedouin. The governor threw him off the palace roof, but the fall didn't kill him. He was broken, but still breathing. Some men came up to him and slit his throat to end the suffering. After the prayers, Hussein called his followers to gather around him. Zainab saw her sons near the front ranks, looking up at their uncle. Hussein read from a written statement. His voice was strong, but a little shaky. Some might have thought it was fear that made his voice quake, but Zainab knew her brother better. He did not fear anything. His voice shook from sorrow. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, began Hussein. The dreadful news of the murder of Muslim ibn Aqil, Hani ibn Urwa, and Abdullah ibn Yaktur has reached us. Our Shia in Kufa have deserted us. 
Many of you joined me because you thought, as I did, that Kufa would welcome us and we'd have a chance at victory. But as it turns out, that will not be the case. It is very likely that if you continue with me, you may face death. Therefore, if any of you would like to return home, you may do so and be free of any guilt. Zainab looked around. No one among Banu Hashim moved. But most of those who had joined over the past three weeks packed up their belongings and departed. Over the next few days, Zainab noticed a dark quiet had settled on the group. They traveled with a dreadful, somber silence. Most of the time, the only sounds she heard were the grunts from the animals, their feet against the hard, packed earth, and an occasional baby's whimper. A few days later found them resting at a place called Batan al-Aqaba, waiting out the sun's unbearable heat. There, in the shade of a mountain, they found an old man from the Ikrima tribe resting as well. Zainab overheard Hossein strike up a conversation with him. I beg you, by Allah, Ibn Ali, do not go to Kufa, the old man said after listening to Hussein. You won't find anything there but the tips of spears and the edges of swords. Your wise advice is appreciated, uncle, said Hussein respectfully. But I cannot ignore Allah's commandment. I must continue on to Kufa until Allah decides otherwise. When the sun had cooled, they continued their journey until Hussein ordered them to strike camp at a place called Sharaf. Now they were only two days from Kufa. The next morning, Hossein led them in prayer, then ordered everyone to stock up on water again. Then they broke camp and set off at a quick pace towards Kufa. Several hours later, someone near the front yelled, Allahu Akbar! What is it? asked Hossein. Why did you say that? I think I see palm trees up ahead, the man responded. Zainab directed her camel towards a sloping hill to have a better look. Perhaps it was another watering hole where they could get more information. Instead, what Zainab saw made her heart sink. She covered her mouth to stifle a cry. It was not palm trees in the distance. It was the steel points of hundreds of glimmering lances. Al-Qadisiyya al-Iraq, Wahid wasitin, Sanatu Hijriya. Qadisiyya, Iraq, 61 AH. Omar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas beckoned the messenger into his tent. Commander, the man said, I have an update from Hud ibn Yazid. Hud ibn Yazid was Omar's captain of the advance guard. He had sent him ahead with a thousand men, hoping Hussein would realize the futility of his rebellion. Omar's scouts had been tracking Hussein's movements ever since the oasis at Zubala. He had even sent a few men to warn Hussein not to come to Kufa. He kept hoping Hussein would come to his senses and go back to Mecca. His scouts had reported Hussein was traveling with less than 200 people, many of them women and children. There was no way he could hope to defeat the advance guard, let alone Omar's entire force. Omar listened as the messenger explained what happened after the advance guard arrived. When Hussein saw Hordas troops approaching, he led his group to a small mountain called Dhu Husum. This was a classic military tactic to protect one's rear. Hod had stopped his men across from Hussein, just close enough to be imposing. He had been ordered to arrest Hussein, but not to attack unless provoked. The two sides stood quietly in the hot sun for almost an hour. Each expected the other to make the first move. Finally, the time for prayer came and both sides lined up. Hod asked Hussein to lead them in prayer, which he did. 
When they finished, Hussein explained his reasons for rebellion. He accused Banu Umayya of corruption and tyranny and that the Kufans had begged him to come. When Hur said he knew nothing about that, Hussein brought out a satchel with at least 50 letters and dumped them on the ground between them. Horda simply responded that his orders were to bring Hussein to the governor and, of course, Hussein refused. When the two parties went back to their positions by the mountain, Hussein tried to lead his group towards Kufa. But everywhere he went, Horda's advance guard cut him off. When Hussein tried to go left, Horda's soldiers moved to block him. When Hussein went right, Horda blocked him again. When Hussein walked straight along the road, Horda's men marched in the same direction on the opposite side. What was he trying to do? asked Omar ibn Sa'ad. Horda wanted to make sure Hussein could not advance towards Kufa. I think Horda was trying to obey his orders without directly engaging with Hussein. This cat and mouse game continued for several hours as they zigzagged across the desert. Horda kept forcing Hussein northwest away from Kufa until they reached Udaybun Hijanat, a popular watering hole and grazing area. There, four Iraqi Shias arrived and informed Hussein that Kufa was lost. Horde had wanted to arrest those four new Shia, but Hussein insisted they were part of his group. They argued a bit, but eventually Horde let the men stay with Hussein. Wait a minute, said Omar ibn Sa'ad. You mean to tell me Hud allowed Hussein to take on more men? Uh, yes, Commander, the man nodded. What was he thinking? Commander, said the messenger solemnly, Hussein knew that Hur did not want to fight him and was taking advantage of this weakness. One of the four Shia even warned Hussein about you. Really? Omar ibn Sa'ad was surprised. What did he say? He told Hussein that this was only the advance guard and there were another 4,000 men at Qadisiyah. Then he invited Hussein to go with him into the Aja Mountains where his people would protect him. Did he go with him? Omar asked hopefully. No, he said he had an agreement with the people of Kufa and he meant to see it through. Omar ibn Sa'ad slumped back in his chair, crestfallen. If only Hussein had taken that offer... Omar could have gone back to Ubaidullah and honestly said he had done his duty. After that, the man continued, the man left and Hur dispatched the messengers. Messengers, repeated Omar ibn Sa'ad, you're not the only one? No, he sent another messenger to update the governor. Ya Allah, exclaimed Omar ibn Sa'ad jumping up, go to the captains, tell them to get their men ready for deployment, we march at dawn. If Ubaidullah interfered, this whole affair was going to get very bad, very quickly. He had to reach Hussein first. Nineveh, Al-Iraq, Wahid Wasitin, Sanato Hijriya. Nineveh, Iraq, 61 AH. Hussein ordered a halt on the sandy plain. He needed a moment to think things through. Several yards away, Hod and his men were stopped as well. Hussein had hoped he could lead his smaller group around Hod and make a break for Kufa, but traveling with so many women and children slowed him down. Hussein was well off course from Kufa. Hod had forced him north of the city and things did not look like they were going to get any better. If he could just get a moment to think... Though dogged, Horda seemed like a reasonable man just following orders. Hussein felt that if he could 
just have a moment to talk with him, explain what he was trying to do, Hood might actually let him through to Kufa. Hussein knew that was his only chance. He had to hope that Allah changed some people's hearts and that they would understand his mission for what it was. So far, nothing had gone right. Everything was falling apart. A part of him wanted to give up and return to Mecca. But he couldn't do that. Too many people had died for this mission. Hussein could not let their deaths go in vain. Muslim ibn Aqil, Hani ibn Urwa, Abdullah ibn Yaktur, and, according to the four men from Kufa, Qais ibn Mushir as well. These were good men who worshipped Allah and loved his messenger. They died trying to establish justice and fight corruption. Then Hussein thought about his family. He had the best men from Banu Hashim with him. There were women and children and babies, including his own sons and nephews. All of their lives depended on the choices he made. The sound of hoofbeats came echoing across the plain. Hussein and his men looked east and saw a lone rider galloping full speed towards them. The rider pulled up short, greeted Hord, and handed him a letter. Hussein watched Hord unfurl the letter and read the message. Hord frowned, handed the letter back to the rider, and nodded. His lips pressed tightly together. This is a letter from the governor, Obedullah ibn Ziyad, Hord announced to Hussein and his group. He has ordered me to bring you to an immediate halt. This man is Obadullah's personal messenger, and he's to stay with me until I've carried out this order. Zuhair ibn Uqayn approached Hussein. I do not divorce my wife and give up my family to submit to the bastard's son. I suggest we attack Hod now. He'll be easier to take on than the thousands that are coming behind him. Hussein shook his head. No, I don't want to strike first. If fighting is inevitable, then we will only do so in self-defense. Then at least let's find some place more suitable. We're like newborn camels out here in the open like this. There's a village not too far from here called Al-Aqar near the plains of Karbala. It is fortified and close to the Euphrates River. Hussein agreed and ordered a hurried march to the village before Horda could respond. They settled into the abandoned village and took up defensive positions. Hussein did not like this. Everything was moving so fast. All he needed was a little time to think. Just a few hours to figure things out. He led his group in prayer before eating a small meal of dried camel meat and dates. Then he posted guards and settled down for the night. The next morning, he led them in prayer and began to reconsider his options. Hud wanted to take him to Omar ibn Sa'ad, who would want him to give Yazid the pledge. The thought sickened Hussein. It would be doubly humiliating. He'd have to travel to Syria as a prisoner then take Yazid's fat, wine-stained hand and give him the pledge. There was another option. Hussein could send his family back home, then join the military and go fight in the cause of Allah until he was killed. He'd rather die fighting the Romans than fighting other Muslims. Hussein might also offer to live in exile away from all the major cities. The thought of spending his last years on the frontiers of the empire with his family had a certain appeal. He could certainly do without the politics of Mecca and Kufa. He was just finishing his breakfast of hard barley bread, olive oil, dates and warm camel's milk when he heard someone shouting. Hussein ran outside, his dates still in hand. Then he saw what all the commotion was about. A host of thousands of soldiers was coming over the horizon. Darul Imaro, Al-Kufa, 
واحد وستين سنة هجرية. The Governor's Palace, Kufa, 61 AH. A message from Umar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, the man said, handing the rolled up parchment to Ubaidullah. Ubaidullah did not know what to expect. He had his doubts about Umar ibn Sa'ad's ability to get the job done. Umar's reluctance to march against Hussein was particularly irksome. He only agreed when Ubaidullah threatened to strip him of his titles. Ubaidullah read the letter and smiled. Perhaps he had underestimated Omar. So far, everything had gone as planned. Both of Hussein's messengers had been caught and executed. Most of the Sharia in Kufa had rescinded their pledges to Hussein and reaffirmed their loyalty to Banu Amaya. And according to Omar ibn Sa'ad's letter, Hussein's pitiful party was cornered in an abandoned village by the Euphrates. Omar had sent messengers to speak with Hussein to inquire what he wanted. Hussein had responded that the people of Kufa invited him to come. But now, if they did not want him, he would leave them alone and go away. Omar ibn Sa'ad wanted to know if the governor would accept that offer. Abedullah shook his head. No. It was too late for Hussein to walk away now. He should have never rebelled against Yazid in the first place, and he should not have sent his cousin to Kufa. Hussein did not have to leave Mecca. He did not have to cross hundreds of miles of open desert. He did not have to bring his women and children along with him. Throughout that entire journey, Hussein could have changed his mind at any time and gone back to Mecca. Now, when our claws are in you, you want to talk it out and walk away, said Ubaidullah. But the time for talking has passed. Ubaidullah called for ink and parchment and penned a response to Omar ibn Sa'ad. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I have received your letter and I've understood everything you said. Offer Hussein the opportunity for him and his followers to give Yazid the pledge. If he does that, then we'll think about what comes next. Ubaidullah thought that sounded good but felt something was missing. He had to put the pressure on Hussein. He had to make him realize this rebellion was futile and doomed. He had to bring him to his knees quickly. Hussein's family was his weakness. Hussein might be willing to sacrifice himself for this foolish cause, but he would not sacrifice his women and children. A few days of their suffering and Hussein would be begging to take Yazid's hand. Abedullah continued writing. Keep Hussein and his followers away from water. Do not let them get a single drop until they've surrendered. Let them suffer, thought Ubaidullah. Let their lips and throats crack from thirst just like they did to my ancestor, the righteous caliph Othman ibn Affan. All right, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial and entertaining and enlightening and all that good stuff. Now, let's get into some of the uh, insights into this uh, episode that we just covered. So, as you can see from here, uh, things aren't really going very well for Hussein. He now sees that his, his mission and his uh, mini-rebellion, they are both falling apart and he has put himself in a very difficult situation. Remember, remember throughout the entire journey and even in the last episode, many people had advised him, don't go to Kufa, stay out of Kufa. Don't do this, Hussein, this isn't a good idea. Though there were some who did encourage him also. In my opinion, Hussein really didn't plan this thing out too well and he lost control towards the end. 
Also, he weakened himself just from once again, strategically, he weakened himself by bringing the women and children along with him. Since this was more or less a military endeavor, he probably should have left the women and children at home. I, I do understand there was a the the option or the fear that the Umayyads could take his family and then put pressure on Hussein to give up his his mission, give up his rebellion, so to speak. That would have been difficult for Hussein to do, but I really do believe he's taken just seeing the history of how it unfolded. He really hurt himself by bringing women and children with him. He put himself in a really difficult situation. Uh, one new character was introduced in this episode. That was Zainab bint Ali. She is Hussein's sister. Uh, she accompanied she accompanied him on this journey to Karbala. Now she doesn't play too she didn't play too much too big of a role in this episode, but she'll begin to play a bigger role in the next episode, inshallah. And of course, we had uh, the governor of um, of uh, Kufa, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad. Now, Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad, he has there's no doubt about what side he's on. He doesn't have any doubts about his thing, about his mission, or about his purpose. As far as he's concerned, this thing is very black and white. Hussein is a rebel from his perspective, and he doesn't care who he's related to. He doesn't care that he's related to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam or to Ali or to Fatima. Ubaidullah doesn't care about any of that. His thing is that Hussein is a rebel and he's going to do his best to bring Hussein to his knees. That's what his his purpose his I want to say his purpose. That's what his goal is. Ubaidullah now Ubaidullah is the kind of person that he he for some reason I'm trying I don't want to delve too much into his character because it's hard to really force things on someone from a thousand years ago, a thousand fourteen, a thousand four hundred years ago. But Ubaidullah was the kind of person who wants to impose his power on other people. He wanted to prove that he has more power. So that he had an opportunity here towards the end where he could have just told Hussein or said to Omar ibn Sa'ad, tell Hussein to go back to Mecca, don't come into Kufa. And Ubaidullah could have avoided all of this, all of what comes next. But instead, Ubaidullah, he's just not that kind of person. He wants to make Hussein cry uncle. And so he escalates the situation to the point where there is no turning back. He forces Hussein to take to make certain decisions that leads to a very tragic outcome. So once again, Ubaidullah ibn, ibn Ziyad, he of course has definitely has a lot of fault in the way things go down. And the man in between these two is Omar ibn Sa'ad, the son of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, who was a great companion and was a candidate for the caliphate himself. Omar ibn Sa'ad is torn between two things. He to he's torn between doing what is right, and the right thing is to not march against Hussein. And he's also torn between doing what is expedient and beneficial, which is to march against Hussein. Now he wants to keep his position, though Omar ibn Sa'ad, he threatened him to take he threatened to take away his position as governor of Ray, which is in north central Iran, modern day Iran, kind of like uh, close to where Tehran is right now, the capital of Iran, around that area. Uh, he threatened to take that position away from him. And despite everything that his family told him, Omar ibn Sa'ad decides that he's going to go ahead and march against Hussein. He seems to think he's smart enough or, or witty enough to somehow balance the two, somehow uh, keep his position and satisfy his governor, Obedullah, while not necessarily drawing Hussein's blood or, or directly fighting against Hussein. 
Uh, ultimately, however, he doesn't really un- understand the two people he's 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 in between. He doesn't he underestimates the stubbornness of these two men, Hussein and Obaidullah, and Omar ibn Sa'ad winds up being used as basically a pawn by Obaidullah, and it it doesn't really get much better going forward. Um, Omar ibn Sa'ad doesn't he made a bad decision by marching out against Hussein. So. That pretty much covers um, the main characters for this episode. Uh, at the uh, show notes, I've put a map of Hussein's journey, uh, just so you can get an idea where these locations are. Now, I had to do my best guess scenario, so when I plot these points in Hussein's journey, it is not you know 100% accurate, but I think it's pretty pretty good accurate, 95% accurate at least, uh, based on maps from the from years ago based on the names of modern day places based on the history i think i'm pretty accurate on how all of um on the different plot points i have on this map of hussein's journey so once again you can get that at the show notes and the show notes page will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash karbala one karbala is k-a-r-b-a-l-a karbala one that's the number one and uh this week's muslim podcast podcast of the week podcast uh, the Muslim Podcast of the Week will be the Productive Muslim Podcast. This is a podcast made by the popular um, website, ProductiveMuslim.com. Currently, they're doing a Ramadan Heart Detox Challenge. That's what's going on right now. And uh, there'll be a, a short clip at the end of the show if you want to listen to it. And there'll be links to the po- Productive Muslim Podcast in the show notes, inshallah, which will once again be IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Karbala1. At the show notes page, you're going to find a transcript a transcript for this episode. Once again, a map of Hussein's journey to Karbala, a link to make a pledge to support the show. And I know you really want to do that. And of course, a link to the Productive Muslim Podcast, the Muslim Podcast of the Week. Remember, once again, this show is completely listener supported. And of course, my, my, uh, my paycheck. So... My paycheck is from my uh, nine to five job. So that's all that really supports this show. Uh, I do greatly appreciate the words of confidence that people have left on iTunes. Some people have emailed me as, as well. Uh, don't, I didn't respond to all of you, but trust me, I read all of them. I greatly do appreciate it. And I hope I, inshallah, I can continue doing it. If you can't send in the pledge, if you don't want to donate money, really your letters of and emails and the um, comments on iTunes of encouragement those are actually pretty darn good, okay? I mean, the money would be nice too, but those are pretty good, believe me. That really motivates me and it keeps me going and and really makes me feel good. So I thank all of you who have uh, who have unknowingly encouraged me to continue working on this podcast, including you, Brother Ali, including you. All right, with that, inshallah, we're going to wrap it up here, inshallah. Hopefully, I have another episode for you soon. Don't know when, uh, but nonetheless, Inshallah, we will be back next time. Until then, Ramadan Mubarak and Assalamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuhu. Assalamu Alaikum and welcome to day 14 of the Heart Detox Challenge. It's now two weeks into Ramadan. We are almost halfway through this blessed month. Now, for today, your article is on Lycomania Are You Obsessed with Social Media? Now, in today's day and age, social media is everywhere, whether you're using Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it doesn't matter. And many of us have developed soft addictions to social media. We are constantly checking our posts. How many likes did we get? How popular are things? 
and we've reached the point where we upload most of our daily life onto social media what we wear what we cook where we go to eat and it's endless and According to the Infomet Mobile Intelligence, an average of 4.7 hours a day is spent on our smartphones. And that leads you to ask yourself, with the amount of time that we spend on our smartphone, how much of it is actually productive and how much of it is actually a waste of time? And in this, there's a very, very beautiful hadith that I really want you guys to reflect on. And it's a Nawawi hadith that says, Part of the perfection of one's Islam is leaving that which does not concern him. Which is the exact opposite of what social media does. Social media gets us involved in people's lives who we should have no attachment to. And one of the dangerous parts of social media is the fact that it can also portray a life of people that they don't actually have. 